What is the current state of religious freedom in America? And where should we be? Hi, I'm Stuart Shepard, and this is First Liberty Live. Thank you for liking and sharing our videos. That's how we get to meet new people, and we appreciate the fact that you're interested enough in these to think about your friends and family who may also be interested, and share the good news with them as well. Jordan Baller is Director of Research for our Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. He has a Doctor of Theology from the University of Zurich, and also a PhD from Calvin Theological. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Stuart. I am almost not smart enough to ask you questions, is what I'm figuring out here. <laughs> well, I hope I can answer some, yeah. <laughs> I'll throw a few at you. Okay. First of all, for those who are hearing about it for the first time, tell us about the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. What is it? What does it do? Sure. So the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, or the CRCD, as we try to call it, shorthand, uh -huh. is an initiative of First Liberty Institute. Our task is to make a cultural and academic case for religious liberty, and religious responsibility, really, how people of faith contribute to the common good, all of the good things that uh, religious believers and religious adherents do in the world, all the positive ways that they engage culture and society and politics. And so we examine those questions and uh, explore the answers to them and try to advertise some of the results of things that we find and discover in conversations. That and we I, I always like to describe it as trying to influence the culture before we end up in a courtroom. So that's right. So if you think of First Liberty as um, litigating and defending rights in the courtroom and in the court of public opinion, we're investigating how those rights can be used responsibly, uh, making the case for religious belief and religious adherence and religious exercise in the cultural realm. Okay, first let's talk about where we are as a culture. CRCD recently released something called Religious Liberty in the mm -hmm. States. It was an index of the 50 states and, and how they're doing in religious liberty. Tell us a bit more about the, the, the decisions that were made in putting that together and also what we learned from it. So Religious Liberty in the States is, a, is an empirical and statistical index of legal safeguards for religious liberty across the 50 states. So it's the first domestic state level index of religious liberty in, the, in America. Um, we just came out with the first edition of it earlier this year. The results were surprising in many ways. Um, the top two states are states that are quite different in terms of their profiles. The bottom three, uh, we could talk about those two, and then there's quite a, obviously diversity from one to 50 there. Um, the goal was really to identify um, the state of things in terms of the legal uh, safeguards that are on the books across these states. So we looked for items, we ended up identifying 29 different items um, that all states had acted on or have statutes regarding. If and I can then, interrupt, yeah, the, yeah. the key to that I think was we didn't, we being CRCD, yeah. didn't write a list and then go look for it. Yeah. We looked at what the states were already doing and made the list from what's out there. Exactly. So we didn't come with a predetermined kind of ideal for what religious liberty might look like. Now, that would be an interesting exercise, but it would be one that was totally different from what we, we executed. Yeah. We're looking for what states have done on their own. Um, and in that way, it's kind of from the bottom up. What's going on out there in the world? What's going on out there at the state level in the United States? And what have states done? So anywhere that a state had acted to protect religious exercise or free exercise somewhere, we took note of that. And then we looked across the other 50 states to see if they had done something similar. Went through a really rigorous uh, methodological process, weighted the, uh, graded them, zeros and ones, whether that safeguard was present or not, weighted those, and then came out with the ranking. Give me an example, just one or two, of what, what a statute would be that would be something that would favor religious freedom? What, so, what does it look like? Yeah, one of the major ones we looked for were state-level RIFRA protections, Religious Freedom Restoration Acts. Yeah. Um, that was one of the 11 safeguards that uh, were one of the categories up from those 29, that inclusive of those 29. Um, 
childhood immunizations was another one, whether the states has regulations for, um, all states have regulations with respect to what immunizations are required to participate in public schools, but whether they had a, um, an exemption, explicit exemption for conscience or philosophical reasons or religious reasons. Yeah. So those Who, are a couple of those 29 examples. Yeah. Who's at the top of the list? So at the top of the list is Mississippi. Right behind them is Illinois. So the top two are Mississippi and Illinois. Not um, expected? I mean, it was, you know, you could have asked, polled, what would you have expected in terms of who's going to come out on top and then the bottom? Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe some conventional wisdom would have said a red state, typically a traditional red state like Mississippi would do okay. Um, Illinois was not at the top of many people's list, probably. This is measuring what's on the books, what's not on the necessarily books. how they're enforcing it, but you got to start somewhere. That's true. And so one of the things that we learned is that the results do not correspond to kind of traditional federal level uh, perceptions of either politics or friendliness towards religion or antagonism towards religion. And that a state that's traditionally considered to be um, progressive or a blue state can do very well relative to the other states yeah. in protecting free exercise and religious liberty. So how can this index be used? Who are you hoping will pick it up and try to do something with it? So there are a number of different audiences. One of the, one of the first audiences um, that we want to engage, because it's part of the mission of the Sierra City, are scholars. Uh, the index was constructed um, according to the best practices of scholarship, um, uh, very transparent with regard to the methodology and the decisions that were made. Yeah. The data set is completely available and open to the public. So we're hoping that the scholars will do some interesting things using what we found and comparing that to other dynamics uh, of social and political life across the 50 states. And then it goes to everyone from, you know, academic scholars to uh, voters and people who are going to be activists. Every place that we've found that a state has taken action, we've noted that in the law. We've done our best to make that accessible. So with a couple clicks, you can find the source data. Often that's the state law itself. So if there's a state that um, doesn't have one of the protections and you think it should, you can look at any of the other states that we've identified that has it. And that can be a kind of an example for what um, the state that you live in or the state that you think needs to do better can take as an example or a model. I'm hoping some lawmakers look at that and pick it up and, exactly. and, and make it an issue for themselves. Um, I, I want to ask you some of the big idea questions mm -hmm. because you've, you've done a lot of writing and you deal with the larger ideas about society and how we function in the realm of religion and religious freedom. Uh, first, just take us back to the founding. Why did the founders put such a value on religious freedom when they were writing the founding documents for this nation? What is it about the world they lived in that made that such a priority for them? Well, you know, if you think back to the to the way of life in the 16th and 17th centuries, the eras, the generations that preceded um, the founding of the, of the United States, the colonial era, and those those um, those times, religion was really important. It was important at the personal level. It was important at the structural and institutional level. It was important at the national and international level. The the empire, the Holy Roman Empire, was still a reality in many ways that, yeah. at those times. So. Um, it was a matter of religious belief and faith and personal salvation, but it was, uh, it's a reality that has, impa has impacts today, but back then, did too, for the way society was structured. Many of those who came to the New World uh, in the colonial era and in the founding era were looking for a place where they could live freely, um, found communities according to their own convictions, live life according to the dictates of their conscience, um, and create space for them to thrive, both in temporal as well as spiritual and eternal terms. So the founders were the recipients of this kind of a worldview, and they understood the deep um, commitments that, that follow with religious belief, beliefs that will often lead us to suffer for what we believe, sometimes to 
hurt other people, depending on what we believe our responsibilities before God are. So coming out of the eras of the world wars of religion and persecution in the Reformation and post-Reformation periods, the American experiment is really um, a unique attempt to try to find ways for people who disagree on fundamental matters of life and death and salvation and internal relevance to find a way for us to, to live together amidst that plur plurality and diversity. So they built that into the founding documents. Right. They built it into the, the laws as the nation grew and the, the legal foundation was built decision after decision. It, now we have people who are challenging and challenging and challenging, trying to remove that from the fabric of our country. What happens to a society if religious freedom, as protected in the United States, is wiped off the books and gotten rid of? What, what happens to us? A lot of bad things happen. Um, you know, when, when the state or the government or some course of power can reach in and impact uh, aspects of your existence and aspect of your life that, that go to your conscience, to your deepest convictions, that means they can touch anything else, too. And so that's why religious liberty has often been understood as the kind of the first freedom, the most important freedom, both because of what it addresses, our, our deepest convictions about salvation and God and reality, but also because it's a, a bulwark against all kinds of other tyranny and oppression. The founders recognized that a commitment to a transcendent worldview, a, a transcendent reality, a moral order was necessary for a moral people, and that religion is historically the key way that people learn about those realities. So um, if you take God away, you know, it's been said that all things are possible. Um, and that really is true. And in some ways, um, it seems like that's the goal of many to, to put that to a kind of a social experiment to see what might happen. We have examples of that historically, of course, too. Um, and it ends in really, really bad places. You've written quite a few books. Uh, among those, it's been a decade now since yeah. you put it out, but one of them was called Get Your Hands Dirty. It's not about gardening. It's about making the connection between faith and social action. What should people of faith like us be doing to impact the culture around us? How do we get our hands dirty? Yeah, and so I, I think that's a good way of thinking about it, is that we have a call to get involved in the world and all of its messiness and all of the complexity um, amidst all of our uncertainties about what it means to be faithful, um, we can do our best with what we have and with what God has given us and trust the rest to Him. Yeah. So that's the real um, intent behind that kind of a title and that kind of a, a thrust is that God has called us to be faithful where He's placed us. He's equipped us to do that. Um, and so it's our responsibility to respond in faith um, wherever He has placed us. In your most recent book writing, you also make the connection between theology and morality moral responsibility and you make the connection to economics which would i think cause a lot of people to go wait what whoa you started with theology but you're making a connection with economics yeah. how do those go together it's interesting if you think historically and i'm always inclined to do that i'm trained as a historian so i yeah. think about where the origins of these disciplines and where we thought about these things came from originally and you know nowadays often there is this natural way natural way of thinking of um, a conflict between morality and economic life. That one is very secular, doesn't have anything to do with, with moral norms or the way we behave. It's just all about making money or maximizing profit or whatever. The reality is, though, that the discipline of economics, previously also known as political economy, was deeply influenced by and in turn influenced theology. And so you had um, at the foundations of this modern discipline of political economy and then later economics, deep reflections about moral realities, the moral order, and so on. 
So there is a, a, a deep and I think intrinsic connection between theology and economics, and that's been a large part of my academic career is exploring that intersection. Yeah, I, and the things that come to my mind are that ownership of property, Mm -hmm. uh, things like the fact that you can't really have a business transaction without some level of trust, right. which is a moral underpinning. What else would you add to that list? So the virtues that some of those which you've named, trustworthiness, fidelity, um, stewardship, these are themes that are important, obviously, within the history of the Christian tradition with respect to moral teaching and social thought, but they have very clear implications for economic life. Um, one of the things I've written about recently is the status of wealth creation. You know, this idea that we need to, in some ways, be productive with our labor to take what God has given us in his bounty and discover new things in it that would be of use to others and wait, find ways of serving others. And it, it was really an explanation of the moral status of wealth creation, what do people think about this idea of creating wealth in the 16th and 17th centuries. And um, perhaps counterintuitively, they had a very positive view of wealth creation, actually. It wasn't, um, it was constrained within the sense of, obviously, they were they were aware of the dangers of greed um, and enviousness, and envy and covetousness. But apart from those abuses, there was still a very important and strong sense that God has called us to be productive, uh, to get our hands dirty and finding ways to be of creative service to others. Yeah. That's a look back. That's history. Mm -hmm. As you look forward, what do you see? Where are we headed? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, just, just a comment on economics. That's one of the ways which the discipline, um, I think, has been tempted is because, it, uh, you know, people always want to ask economists, where's the economy headed? Where are they going? Now, I'm a theologian, not an economist, but it's also tempting to... I'm a meteorologist to, to, by training, and we're always <laughs> thankful for economists. Yeah. Because <laughs> right. they made us look good. <laughs> so with those caveats aside, I'm hopeful. I mean, um, as a Christian, I know how the story ends, even if I don't know exactly how we get there. So certainly in the long term, we can be hopeful about um, how the grand story progresses and ends. In the shorter term, we have many serious challenges, uh, both in, in the global sense as well as in, in the national sense. And um, the positive way to think about that is there's a lot of really good work out there to be done and that God has called us to. So um, I like that there are trade-offs and all kinds of those uh, analyses, but that's the way I, t I try to think about it. Very good. Anything else you'd like to share before I let you go? Um, you know, I'm new to the CRCD and First Liberty. I'm just very grateful to be here and thankful for the opportunity to talk with you today, Stuart. Well, we're, we you. are glad you're here. Welcome to the team. Thank you. There are a lot of really talented, qualified people here, and it's just yeah. fascinating. I love stopping people in the hall and just saying, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me three things about you. Jordan, thanks again. Appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for having me. If you'd like to learn more about the work of the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, you can drop by the website at crcd.net.net, so Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, crcd.net. We'll put a link to that in the text that goes along with this video. First Liberty is your last line of defense and your greatest hope for victory.